We're in the book of Isaiah today. If you want to turn there with me, please. Isaiah chapter 59. And uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, we've got a whole stack of them over there. If anybody would like one, you can feel free to take that. Sam's offering to hand them out if you don't have one. Isaiah 59, we're picking up where we left off last week, which is in verse 15. And uh, for those of you who were not here with us, maybe you haven't been with us as we've been moving through the book of Isaiah, uh, that's perfectly okay. Uh, Where we're at today in our text is coming, following God, evaluating all the people. And as we understood, as Paul helped us understand that this evaluation was not just for a historical people at a particular time, although it was for them too. This evaluation was for all people. That's the way that Paul understood it. When he quoted and he said, there is no one righteous. How many? No, not even one. There is none righteous before the eyes of God. So God takes his evaluation of all humanity. And how does humanity do? Not so good. Humanity is found lacking. They are found unrighteous before a holy and righteous God. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves, um, knowing that judgment has come, that the verdict is in, and uh, it doesn't look so good for humanity. So what we're going to pick up with here then is we're going to see God fulfilling a few roles here at first as we finish chapter uh, 59. We're going to see God fulfilling a couple of roles and doing a few things. And then what we're going to see in chapter 60 is we're going to see all that God has planned for a particular group of people. Okay? So there's very, very good news coming. But with any good news, what do you suspect there also is? Bad news. Wherever you find light, it is only with the knowledge and understanding of the reality of darkness. And so when we see that there is good news, there's good news for a reason, because without this good news, I would be left with bad news. And so the good news comes, and we're going to see that um, all throughout this text today. So we are taking a pretty big chunk of scripture today, so let's dig into it together. So just want to invite you to look at it with me. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to go ahead and read second half of 15 all the way through 21. It says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so let's walk through the text just a little bit this morning in this way. First, we're seeing a description of God's activity. And God, I said, is playing three roles here. And it's not make-believe, this is real. But as we look at God, don't we notice, just as someone looks at you, right? The more we look, the more we understand that you are a multifaceted person, right? I, I might know you, but I only know some of you. But the more I see and the more I know, I realize there are different sides to you, aren't there? And so in the same way, we see God fulfilling multiple roles here so that as we look at God, yes, he is this, but he is also this. And he is also this. We're going to see three things, okay? What is the first thing that God is doing? We see God described here as judge here at first. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
So the Lord saw it. He saw the guilty verdict of humanity. That's what he saw, right? And how did, how did that settle with him? Was he happy about that? Guilty verdict of humanity. He was displeased with that verdict. He was displeased with what was to come on humanity with that guilty verdict. And he, it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. And he wondered. Actually, that word wondered, I think, is better translated appalled. That's actually how it's translated later on in the text. But he looked and he, he was looking around and there was no one. And it, it appalled him that there was no one. There was no man, there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So this is what God's doing at first. Um, He's looking around and he's realizing that as the judge, the guilty verdict has been given and what comes comes next with with the verdict? Sentencing. And is God happy with how things are gonna go with humanity for this sentencing that he must give? God is not happy, but at the same time, he is appalled at the fact that there is not even one person to intercede for the people. We understand what intercede is, right? That is to plead someone else's case. There is no one to even speak on behalf of humanity here. I have laid out all the evidence for the guilt of humanity. Now, you go ahead. Who do you have representing you? No one. There's no one. There is no one to represent you. There is nothing good to say about you. So this is bad news. So God has judged then. He looks around and he sees that there is no one. But does God leave it at that? That he's just appalled that there's no one. Look at what he does. Then, in that moment, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So God acted. God looked at the guilty verdict on humanity and then there was no one to intercede. And so what did God do? He said, well, I suppose I'll have to step in, right? Was this God's plan all along, by the way? Of course it was. So God then steps in to intercede on behalf of humanity. And who is our intercessor? Jesus Christ. Maybe you stumbled on that a little bit because the Holy Spirit is also called our intercessor right? But we have Jesus working as our intercessor. That is someone who stands in between us and almighty, righteous, holy God. We need someone in between. Don't we need someone to plead our case? Did you wake up this morning and think, all all is good. I I evaluated my own life today, and you know what? I'm I'm doing just fine. I need no one to speak on behalf of me. I, I I got it taken care of myself. Or did you wake up thankful that you have someone to plead your case before God Almighty, who is judge of all the earth? If you have faith in Christ, you have someone to plead your case before the Father. Did you know that? You do not have to plead your own case. How would that go for you anyway? Not so good. So we have someone to plead our case. Now, I just want to read this in in passing. We're going to move on to the next section here. But Acts 17, this is when Paul is in Athens and... uh, He's where all the smart people are, right? All the philosophers, and they're all gaining knowledge and wisdom. And Paul says something there that I, it's just applicable in this, in this moment. Listen, listen to what he says, Acts 17, 30, and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that man being Jesus, And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because he still lives, and he is coming, and he will render judgment. On what basis? On the basis of righteousness. He will judge in righteousness. So righteousness is the standard. How do you measure up to perfect righteousness? Are you perfectly righteous, or have you not met the mark of righteousness? If you have had faith in Christ... None of that matters because all of his righteousness is given to you freely. So when that time comes, he's like, okay, you get a pass. Your righteousness exceeds the limits. You got it all. Me? Yeah, you, because you had faith in Christ who has all righteousness and all his righteousness was credited to your account. 
So all the bad you ever did, he took the punishment for that. All the good he ever did credited to your account. And so now you get a pass. You go. You go where? Well, that's good. Hold on to that question because that's what chapter 60 is all about. That's good news, isn't it? So there's a judge who is judging all humanity. This will happen. And he is basing his judgment on righteousness. It is not your righteousness. If you have faith in Christ, it is not your righteousness that gets you pass in judgment. It is the righteousness of Christ that gets you a pass in judgment. If you do not have Christ's righteousness credited to your account, if he is not pleading your case before the Father, you fail. And it's bad news for those who fail because look at how God is portrayed next in the text. God is portrayed as not only as a judge, but as the warrior, the divine warrior. Listen to this, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. The coastlands will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, and he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. How does that leave you feeling? God has just arrayed himself for battle, and he is coming against all those who were guilty. And who did that include, by the way? All humanity. God is coming against those, and how does he portray them? Just as Sam said earlier as enemies of God, his adversaries. You are not on neutral grounds with God. No one is. You are either friend of God, son of God, child of God, or you are enemy of God, adversary. There's no middle ground, okay? You are one or the other. And for those who are his adversaries, his enemies, those who do not meet that righteous standard, God comes arrayed in battle garments for you. This is not good. He takes vengeance as his clothing. He wraps himself in zeal as jealousy. Jealous for who? For his own namesake. And he is coming to give repayment. How does he give repayment, by the way? According to their deeds. According to their deeds, that's how he renders repayment. So every deed that was done, this is how God is going to repay. So that, that talks about judgment then, doesn't it? That all your deeds then are laid out and they are weighed and they are judged. And, but God already rendered the verdict, right? He's already done this. How does all humanity fare? Fail. Unrighteous. So God is coming to who? To all. And what is he bringing? Wrath. He is bringing wrath. Later on, actually, in chapter 63, I'll just tell you, um, chapters 60 to the end of the book are going to have some overlapping uh, ideas here quite a bit, okay? Because it's, it's all about the glory that is to come for those who are his and the wrath that is to come for those who are his enemies. That's going to be a reoccurring theme up until the end of this book. There's only six more chapters, though. I know that's crazy, but we're getting near the end. Um, so in chapter 63, though, listen to how this is the same situation. Listen to how it's described. Listen to this. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was appalled, and there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought me salvation. This sounds exactly like what we just read, doesn't it? But that's chapter 63 I'm reading from. My wrath upheld me. And so I trampled down the people in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And then actually, if you keep reading there, it says to the one, someone looks at this one who just did all this, and they said, why are your garments all red? Why do you think they're red? From the blood that was spilled from all his enemies. This is the depiction of the divine warrior God. Is this the God that you know? Or is this a God that has been glossed over and replaced with a different form of God? This is very much how God is portrayed in our scriptures. And we will not gloss over it. This is part of the character of God. 
there is wrath to come for sin, and we acknowledge it. So God will come as warrior, avenging all those who did not meet that righteous standard. That will happen. Judgment will come because he is the judge after all, right? He is not only the judge, he is the one who brings about the sentence. He is the warrior. And he's coming ready for battle, and he will not fail. Okay? Uh, I just want to point out here, by the way, do you notice that in that description of God's armor, uh, that there are no weapons listed? I don't know if you noticed that. Just look at it. How many weapons does he have? It's just all about what he's wearing. It's just all about his clothes. God has no weapons. So what does he need? His own arm. That's what he needs. That's what it said earlier. That's all he needs. I got my arm. That's it. Have we read about the strength of God's arm? I think we have, haven't we? We have read what God can do about his, with his arm. And this is all he needs to work salvation. It is all he needs to bring about wrath for his enemies. The arm of God is all that he needs. Now, Paul picks up on this over in Ephesians, and you probably recognize that, right, with the armor of God. It's interesting to think about the armor of God there. Is it the armor that God gives, or is it the armor that God has? I would say it's the armor that God has. The way that God has clothed himself ought to be the way that we clothe ourselves for battle against sin, right? Isn't that the armor of God? All right, let's look next. So God is not only judge, he is also warrior in the text, but he is also redeemer. That's good. That's both sides, right? Because if there's a warrior God coming and everyone's being judged on their own deeds, who do you want in the mix? Someone to save you. Wouldn't you say that's what we need? We're kind of missing a big element here, right? I have been found unrighteous. The whole earth has been judged, me included. All of our deeds are weighed. We are all found guilty. And now, what do we need? We need someone to save us from the wrath of God. And wouldn't you know it? This is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. But let's read about it here from Isaiah. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob. That's beginning in verse 20, by the way. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My, my spirit that is upon you, my words that I put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or the mouth of your offspring or the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. Now, I'll tell you that Paul quotes this right here in Romans chapter 11. Where are we on Wednesday nights? We're about right there, right? And what has been the theme so far uh, in, in these few verses, uh, or these few chapters, I should say, in Romans? It's all about the fact that God has brought in the Gentiles to share in the salvation. And that Paul quotes this to say, listen, it's not as though God has rejected all ethnic Jews, but they are included in this mix. And he will come and he will deliver and he will bring about salvation. And we're going to get to that here soon and on Wednesday nights there. But this is the context that Paul quotes this in is that God is doing an ingathering of his people. And he is not choosing one particular ethnic group to utterly reject, right? This offspring of the Redeemer here, or the offspring of Jacob, or the offspring of Abraham, do you see that it says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord? Covenant to who? Those in Jacob who turn from transgression. But then it says, my spirit is upon you. Where does that take us back to? Who's, who is that said of in Isaiah? The servant, right? My spirit is upon you. Next, next week, chapter 61, Jesus went into the temple and he took what scroll? Thank you. And what chapter did he read from? Chapter 61. We're doing chapter 60 today. And he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's what he said. So, ultimately, the Spirit of God comes on the Redeemer to work salvation. And later on in the text, God is going to be named as the Redeemer of the people. Okay? So, God is being portrayed here as the judge, as the warrior, but then also as the Redeemer. Um, 
do you just remember, if you were with us when we were doing the servant songs, right? Do you remember that portion that said, and he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days? It talked about the death of the servant, but yet, although he died, he will still live to see his offspring. What? What does that mean? It's because he won't stay dead and he will be alive and he will have offspring to come after him. All throughout scripture, who are the offspring that are important? The offspring of Abraham. And how do you become the offspring of Abraham, according to the New Testament? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So there is a way to become these people, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ. All that coming together? It's Mother's Day. Come on. So what we're about to read then is a depiction of the reality that is to come for those who are redeemed. We know what is to come for those who are not redeemed. We had a pretty good description of that. It's somewhat short, but it's a good description, isn't it, of those where God judges and you're found to be his enemies and there's wrath to come because God's coming as a warrior and it's bad news. Well, all of chapter 60 is the good news that is coming for those who are redeemed. So are you interested to see what Isaiah has to say about all that is coming for those who are found to be righteous? We know what's coming on those who are found guilty, not righteous, but what is coming on those who are found righteous? It says, beginning in chapter 60, so what we had was a description of God's activity there in chapter 15, And then what we have next in chapter 60 is the description of God's city. A description of God's activity. And then next that is followed by a description of God's city. So look at verse 1 with me. And uh, I'd like to go ahead and just read the whole chapter. Okay? Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you, your sons shall come from afar, your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover the earth. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and good news and praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Neboah, those shall minister to you. They will come with acceptance on my altar. I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and the kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night, and they shall not be shut that the people may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you will perish. Those nations shall utterly be laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, uh, to beautify my place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down to your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. By the way, for the first time, we figured out who is being described here. And who is being described? A city, after all. Verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of the nations, you will nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer. There it is. Didn't I say that God calls himself the Redeemer later? God himself is the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. And I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. 
Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction with your borders. You will call your walls salvation, your gates praise. The sun will be no more, your light by day, for brightness shall uh, no, for no brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, your, your moon with itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified, the least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time, I will hasten it. All right. Now, I know that was a lot. What we're going to do is uh, I'm not going to necessarily work through this as we normally do, but what, I, what I'd like to see is really just two big realities of what's being described here. Because in a lot of words, sometimes... It, it's easy to get lost in the details of I don't know what that means exactly, right? So I, I hope to make this really, really clear as far as what's being said and uh, what all is being described here. So first of all, what do we see being described? Well, of course, the city itself is being described in the text. And how is the city described? I just have some words for you, and I want you to see it in the text itself. How is the city described? It is described as being glorious. We see that first. And really just the first couple of verses tell us that. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You know that there's a connection, by the way, right, to glory and light. Glory is a shining, brilliant radiance, in a sense, right? So to bring God glory is to, to have Him shine brightly, right? Bring light and glory to Him. So when this glorious light comes, it is the radiating presence of God himself. So the first thing we see is that this city is identified by glory. It is glorious. Darkness will cover the earth, but for this city, thick darkness in the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come. Why? Because there is light. You have that picture in your mind? What Isaiah wants here is for us to picture the earth dark in all of its places except for one spot that is brilliantly radiant in light. Can you envision that? So not only is it a glorious city, it is also beautiful. It's a beautiful city. It is rich and it is prosperous, okay? Um, you can see that in the next few verses, 4 through 9. Just look at all that's being described. There are people coming from everywhere, and what are they bringing with them? The wealth of their nations are all flowing into one central point on the earth. And so not only is it luminous, radiant, brilliant, glorious, but it's also rich and prosperous and abounding in every way. And if you just look at verses 4 through 9, you see all that's being described there. So not only that, it is also a safe place. It is well protected, it is powerful, and it is victorious. You see that in verses 10 through 18. Foreigners build up your walls and their kings minister to you, but I will have mercy on you and your gates will be open continually. What is it, what is it reference really when a city has is, is got walls, right? But your gates are always open. If you have a fence surrounding your yard, right, but you leave the gate open all the time, what good is that fence? Well, it's not really, uh, actually don't need it at all, but it's there, makes us feel safer, or makes us feel like we got something. In the same way, there is a wall around this city protecting the city, but its gates are always open. What does that mean? No threat, Right? you in the habit of leaving your house unlocked? I don't suggest it, okay? In the habit of, I come from Flint, Michigan, okay? You don't, you don't leave your shoes on the front porch, okay? They'll be gone. So you just, we don't necessarily have this in the world that we live in. We don't have this sense of safety. But in this place, no need to worry. All that's gone. You have protection, you have power, but you also have victory, it's yours. 
you live in the place of victory, there's no one who can touch you. Is that a good place to live? Not only that, it is holy and it is eternal. Verses 19 through 22 really give us this reality. The sun will be no more. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine when the sun is no more? Nor brightness from the moon will give you light. But instead, the glory of God will be its light. Some have asked, by the way, skeptics ask, you know, when was light created in the days of creation? Huh? Day one. And what's the only natural source of light in the universe well, at that time, before there were animals and things? You know, the bioluminescence thing. We're not talking about that. Right? Huh? What? The sun? Stars? Okay. They weren't created yet. So how did God create light without any source of light? Answer? Huh? What? He spoke it, but what is it? It's Him, right? Do you see that here in the text? Where, what is the source of light that God created? I have a hearing problem. I wasn't, que- I wasn't questioning it. I, I actually couldn't hear it. <clears throat> so what is this radiant presence it is, is God emitting his own glory. And actually in the New Testament, how is Jesus described? As the very radiance of the glory of God himself. Right? That's a, it's an amazing picture, isn't it? That God himself illumines. And it's the most radiant light you've ever seen. Okay, so not only is it it's holy, there, there's going to be no more sun. Just the glory of God is going to be there. And the people will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting. Okay, how long is this land going to last? Well, according to the text, it's going to last forever. Not for a specific period of time, but forever. Now, before we describe the people here, which is where we're going next, does this sound like a place that you want to live? I want you to just compare. Now, as we just kind of talk about real life here for a second, we have none of these things. You realize that? And do you feel it? We ha- do you feel a sense of security and protection of your own life, that you're kind of in charge of your own life? Nothing can touch you. Nothing can harm you. You're good to go. You don't live with that, do you? If you do, it's a little naive to think that way. Anything could happen to you at any time, of course, under the sovereignty of God, that is. Do you live with peace all around you from enemies? Do you have all the wealth that you could ever imagine? You're just not in need? This is a wonderful place to live, but it is not here and it is not now. And not everyone will live here. Right? So what is the description of this place? Uh, And we kind of have some general idea, but what is the description of the people that live there? So describing the people of the city is a little different than describing the city itself because we're actually getting down to the inhabitants, those actual people that are residents of this glorious city. Let's look at what the text has to say about those people. First of all, they are from all parts of the earth. Isaiah 60 verse 4. Lift up your eyes, see, they gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, your daughters will be carried on the hip. Verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls, right? Do you see that the land has opened up? That's a lot, it's in a lot more places in this text. But what you see is an ingathering of people from everywhere across the whole earth, and they're coming here. Do you see it? It's important that we see that because has that not been a theme throughout the book of Isaiah? Is that God's intention is to ingather the people, right? One comes from there, and another comes from afar, and then they come, and then all of a sudden, it says what in Isaiah? Enlarge the place of your tent, right? You remember that? Your tent you built to house all these people coming, it's too small. You need to make a bigger tent because people are coming from everywhere to live here. 
So it's important, I believe this is what Paul picks up on, because it's an ingathering of all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike, right? Okay, not only that, it's children who actually belong there. Look at, for example, uh, verse 9. The coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, they will bring who? They will bring your children from afar. And then, just before, we talked about how they were sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of who? Sons and daughters who actually belong there. Do you know what it's like to be, well, no, I don't. Some in the room do. To be born in a place where you actually have uh, a right to be there because you were born there, right? Uh, We have a right to be here. We are legal residents, most of us in the room, not all of us, but we are here as residents. We were born here, and we have a right to be here. We are a child of the land, in a sense, right? We belong. But then imagine being given a free pass as a child who was born there to a land that you didn't come from. That's the image here. You didn't belong, but you have been made a child of the land, and so now you belong. So all the people that are gathered to this city belong because they're children. They're sons and they are daughters and they are carried to this place. If you are not a son or a daughter, you don't come in because you don't belong. They are worshipers of God. Verse 11. Also verse 21. Their gates are open continually. They don't shut that the people might bring you the wealth of the nations, okay? What's happening here is that all these people are coming together and they are all offering up these things for the sake of the city, all for the sake of the glory of God, right? If the place is already prosperous and rich and has everything, then what need do we have of more stuff? I don't know if you think about that. What need is it that we come and we give God anything with our lives, by the way. What is God lacking that he does not have? That you can bring him anything. Is the money that we give something that God must have because without it he cannot operate? Or when we bring our gifts to the Lord, are we doing it out of a heart of praise because we want to empty ourselves and give him everything because we trust him with it? We want to give him everything. We want to bow down before him. We want to give him all of us. And that's where that comes from. It's a giving over to God all that is his. All right, another characteristic of the people who live here, verse 17, is that all the people there are righteous. It says, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteous. Remember, this is addressing the city specifically. So all the overseers of the city and all the taskmasters of the city, what are they like? The people who are supposed to be the worst, by the way, if you can't pick up on that. Who's always the worst? Well, the boss, right? The people in charge are always the worst. But you say, in this situation, the taskmasters and those who are ruling, they will be righteousness and peace. Is that a kind of place you want to work, by the way? Where there is only righteousness and peace in your entire work environment forever? That's the place I want to work. And then it says in verse 21, your people shall all be righteous and they will possess the land forever. I think this is probably one of the number one things about the description of these people that should very clearly communicate to us. The people who are here, what are they like? They are righteous people. How many righteous people are there? None. So do we get a problem, right? Because if nobody's righteous, how are we going to fill this city with people? Unless people are made righteous. And that's exactly what we see happen. Right? Okay. Not only that, they will live in peace. Verse 18. Right? And then not only that, they will remain in the land forever. Okay? Verse 21 again. You see that? All that work out okay for you? What I want to leave you with today... Uh, in this picture is I want to show you um, how I read from earlier from the book of Revelation chapter 21, the incredible parallels found 
and what we just read right here in Isaiah chapter 60, and what is said later on with the eye of Christ and the work of Christ being accomplished in Revelation 21. And that's where we're going to kind of wrap up our time together. So if you would, just for a few moments, turn with me over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. As you're flipping there, I just want to let you know, here soon, Isaiah's going to say something, and I just want to read it. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Okay? Isaiah. Let's go to Revelation 21 and just pick up on some parallels here that are found from our text of this description. And uh, I hope it's beneficial to you. All right? Revelation 21, 1 through 4, I read this earlier during our service. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth, they passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Pain shall be no more. There will not be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay, beginning in verse 5 now. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water without payment. If you've been here, that should ring a bell because Isaiah just said that. Verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will give this heritage. Isaiah just said that, the heritage of God, for the servants of God, for the people of God. Okay? I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And when one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last plague spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is known as the bride, the wife of the lamb? The church. So what we should expect to see then is uh, a description of a group of people. Okay. And he carried me away to a high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Is that weird? That he said, I will show you the bride. And then he says, look, here's the city. I think it should come together for us. He carried me away. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. And its radiance was like a rare jewel, a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. We know about that wall. With the 12 gates and the gates of the 12 angels and the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on them. And on the east, the, the three gates, and on the north, three gates, and the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates, and on the wall of the city had the 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay? And so we read a few more descriptions there, but I want to jump down to verse 22. Continuing on, I saw no temple in the city. This is Jerusalem, after all, right? I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty. Now listen to what's about to be described next. Okay? And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp, though this is new, is what? Is the Lamb. And who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. And by its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is everything Isaiah just said. Its gates will never shut. Isaiah just said that. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. And no one who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, all the people will be righteous. Do you see it? 
So what we have in Revelation is an exact description of the place that Isaiah has just described here in the new heavens and the new earth and the place where righteousness dwells. And who belongs in this wonderful, glorious city? It is the bride of Christ who belongs there. The inhabitants of the city are those who belong to Christ. And we end all the way down in Isaiah 22, very last verse, and it says, I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. When are these things going to come? And when is all this going to be a reality? Because it seems like it's been an awful long time that God has been promising this. When did Isaiah write this? Long time ago, about 700 B.C. It's been a little while, and the promise was made then. But the promises have not been lacking. It's not that God is slow to fulfill his promises, is he? Why? I mean, a day is like a thousand years to him. A thousand years is like a day. But he will bring these things to pass. All right. Now, I'm wrapping up here. And uh, this text, I, remember I gave you an assignment if you were here last week? And your assignment was to read this text so that when we got together, you'd be familiar with the text already, right? Now, many of you, though, were not here for, those, for, the, for that assignment. And that's okay. Here's what I hope you're walking away with today because I know that I just gave you a lot of text. I gave you a lot of information. We normally don't cover that much text. But what I just gave you here is a picture and it's a, it's, a, it's a very simple picture if we just step back for a second and look at it. This is a turning point, a hinge in all that we're studying together. I would also say that this is kind of the turning point or the hinge of all of life, actually, if we can understand this one point, is that all the earth has been evaluated and they have been found guilty. And there is a judge of all the earth and he will judge all people according to their deeds. And you will either be found righteous or unrighteous. If you are found unrighteous, the warrior God is coming for you in wrath. It's not good. You will not withstand his wrath. But if you are found to be righteous, you will enter the promised city forever. What a contrast of thought. As I think here today on the day that it is and in our country here where we celebrate a day for a particular group of people, mothers, right? Um, I, was <laughs> I was initially going to joke and say that I have, you know, three tips on how to be a better mother and that will be the sermon for today. But I don't. I actually just have one. And uh, that is that for all uh, mothers included, is that what we need to know about this life is what we just read in the text today. What we need to know and what is most important for all of us to know and remember and believe and trust is that judge, a judge is there. Judgment is coming. You need to be found righteous and you can't get there on your own. You need someone to plead your case for you. This is what you need. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need to place your faith in him. God made a way. You remember that it appalled him that there was no man. There was no one. There was no one righteous to speak on behalf of humanity. So God sent one. He sent Jesus Christ in the flesh to intercede on behalf of humanity. And he did it by living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death on a cross, taking the very wrath of God for sin, and then dying, and then being raised from the dead by the power of God, being ascending to the right hand of the Father, and waiting for that time when he would come back and give to all his people what was coming for them, which is what we just read in the text today. But he is also coming back to give all his adversaries what's coming for them. Jesus Christ is returning, and he is coming to judge both the living and the dead. There's no escaping the judgment of God. It is coming. 
I would like for us all to just live in the middle of this reality. This is a big, this is it. There is nothing else going on in our lives that is more important than this central truth. It is true that we must live each and every moment knowing that it could be our last moment and that I could be entering into glory or entering into judgment. One of these two things is happening. Does my life reflect such a reality? So much of our world is concerned with these little things that are just going to pass away. We all find ourselves getting wrapped up in them, don't we? Do you find all these little itty-bitty things wrapped up in these big grand realities? This is a big picture thing that we were reading about today, right? Judgment, sin, the world to come. It, these are big things. Is your life in perspective of the big things or of the little things, right? Isn't it kind of challenging I will admit from my perspective, hopefully you can admit from your perspective because I see it on your faces. You don't have to, you can just be honest. Sometimes it's actually more difficult to come to terms with the big realities than it is to zero in on these little minute little things and the little historical details and all this theology and how it all connects together. Oh, I love that and eating it up and taking all these notes about it. But when we get to these big picture things and it's simple for some reason, these are the things that it's like, oh, glo- I don't know. I don't know. We kind of, we gloss over those things. We need to be the kind of people that live with the big picture in mind. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need to live out, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need the world to know. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need our children to know. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need the people sitting around us to know. It is it. This is what we have. So I hope you found the text today challenging, from whatever angle challenging, encouraging, and then also convicting. And I'll tell you that I did. Um, Because a text like this, I'll just be honest with you. Okay, we're talking about God is judge, God is coming in wrath, God is... Redeemer, and then heaven. I don't know that I could pick an easier thing to preach on. I don't even need to prepare for that. You just open it up and talk about it. So I hope you see that for me, this was also challenging, right? Because what we have to do is we have to actually dig into the word of God and what it actually says about these things. And we have to see that we need this. We need to be reminded of this big picture story because all the little things that you're about to go out these doors and experience, we need to keep them in the big picture reality. So take a step back today. It's my encouragement to you. Take a step back and think about the big picture of why you're even on this planet and all that is to come for you in Jesus Christ. There is good news for us in Christ, isn't there? And so we have reason for hope, for encouragement, for rejoicing today. All right? Let's pray.